All right, so if you turn to the book of Haggai, please, the Old Testament, the book of Haggai, I have the pleasure of teaching Old Testament to 7th graders and 8th graders uh, in the academy, and the 8th graders were just walking through the book of Haggai. Uh, and, I, and I love this book, and I, I come back to it every so often. Uh, it's an amazing book that has deep relevance for today. And really, before we, before we actually get into this, let's pray first. Father God of glory, we come before you in the name of Christ Jesus, your Son. I would ask that you would open our eyes to your word. Open our ears that we may hear your voice. And I pray, Lord, that you would implant the seed of the word in the good soil of our hearts, that it may grow into some fruit, for, uh, fruit of the Spirit, Lord. Guide us and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before we start reading in Haggai, we're going to look at chapter 1. And I have some notes, so if you didn't get any, there should be some in the music stands by the doors. It's a bit of context, because some of you may not be as familiar with Haggai and the, the surrounding behind that. Just kind of back up a little bit and talk about Israel. Israel had gone through a very big crisis at this time. Sinfulness, spiritual apathy, idolatry was running rampant, and the nation itself split in half. You had the northern kingdom, which retained the name Israel, and you had the southern kingdom, which took the name of Judah. And in the southern kingdom, you had Jerusalem itself. And they were two separate entities. They acted differently. Uh, Israel was a bit more idolatrous in the very beginning, but Judah followed suit along, uh, along with them along the way. Assyria, the nation to the north of, of Israel, came in and conquered Israel. But then there was this new threat looming in the distance, and it was Babylon by uh, Nebuchadnezzar and then Nebuchadnezzar. And all through the minor, actually through Jeremiah and all the minor prophets warning Israel, Babylon is coming. Now, I don't want you to think of this as being some impersonal force. Babylon, namely the person taking you over, is my servant. Because of your hardness of hearts, because of your unfaithfulness, because of your idolatry, you're going off into captivity. And in fact, Jeremiah tells him, don't even try to run away. Just submit to it. If you try to run to Egypt, you're going to die. And sure enough, the people who did try to flee to Egypt perished. So Israel gets taken over by one of the strongest, uh, most fearsome forces of the day. And all of it was, all of them, well, most of them, were taken away into captivity. The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was completely razed to the ground. And then you have Lamentations talking about the aftermath of such things. But... God had prophesied that they would, God through his prophets told Israel it won't be forever. In 70 years, they would be restored to Israel. Well, as kings come and go, as they usually do, and another empire came and took over Babylon, and that was Persia, which would be like modern day Iran about that point. And a new king rose, his name was Cyrus, who said, I want these people to go back to Jerusalem. So he commissions them to go back home. 50,000 Jewish people end up walking back home after 70 years worth of captivity. Now, you have to imagine in that time period, many of those people didn't even know anything about Jerusalem. They were born in captivity as children and were now adults walking their way back. There were some that came back to Israel that remembered what it was like, but not many of them. And 
they were commissioned specifically to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And this is where we're picking up now in Haggai chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. In the second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, says the, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns earns wages to be put in a purse with holes. We have a problem. Problem kind of starts in verse 1, really. I mentioned Cyrus letting the people go. But here we have a different name, a different king. His name was Darius. Well, Cyrus dies in battle. His son commits suicide. Now Darius is in charge. Roughly 18 years have passed. The temple started to be, to be rebuilt, and then it just stopped for roughly 16 years. No progress whatsoever on the temple. Now, there were some reasons for that. Samaritans were making life a little bit more difficult for Israel. There were other things going on. But by and large, no one was building this temple any longer, which kind of brings us to the first point in your notes. Neglecting God's purposes will lead to perpetual frustration. You see, God had rescued them from captivity for a purpose. And that's really God's pattern. You go back to Egypt. God rescues Israel out of Egypt for a purpose. The purpose was to fulfill the covenant promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Here we have a purpose. And if you would just turn really quick in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1. Ezra chapter 1. Now remember, the Bible is not ordered chronologically. It's ordered by genre. You have the books of the law. Then you have historical books. Then you have poetry, wisdom. Then you have the major and minor prophets. But in this historical book of Ezra... We're going to learn what God's ultimate purpose was for them going back to Jerusalem. Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord the God of heavens has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. That's amazing words coming from a heathen king. Whoever there is among you of all these people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver, gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Do we see the purpose why God wanted them to go back to Jerusalem? It was to build the temple of the Lord. And instead of finding a joyful, exuberant, happy people, what we have in Haggai is 
frustrated people. And we see the source. God reveals to them the source of their frustration. Look, look at verse 6. Look at this frustration. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. And I think maybe that last part there we can resonate with a little bit more. Do you ever feel like you earn some money as quick as it comes in, it goes out the door? This is what Israel was going through. They were harvesting. These people were agricultural folks. You know, despite Pastor Scott's amazing agricultural uh, analogies, I know nothing about agriculture and animal husbandry. Nothing. I have a dog. <laughs> a dog who sleeps almost all day long. You know, that, that's the extent of my knowledge. These people knew what they were doing. It was their life. And they were planting and planting and trying to harvest, and nothing was coming in. They were working hard, they were earning wages, and yet things were falling through their purse. As soon as it came in, it went right out the door. Could you imagine the frustration that these people had felt? Well, the source of their frustration was their attitude. Look back up at, at verse... Uh, look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says... The time has not come, even the time, for the house of the Lord to re be rebuilt. Their attitude was, God, you can wait. I'm busy. I'm working. I'm taking care of myself. We'll, we'll get to it. It's just not the time right now. Could you imagine looking God in the face? I hear what you're saying, God. I'm supposed to build this temple. You told us to do that 18 years ago. You can wait. That's what the people were saying. Now, there were other issues at play, and I'm sure politically they were looking at the political horizons like we always try to do. And they said that it was not time. But this was what God had called them to do. And they weren't doing it. God, you can wait. I'm busy. And what were they busy with? Oh, they were focused on their own selfish purposes, weren't they? They were working hard. We read verse 4. Look at verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies desolate? It's interesting that the Lord uses paneled houses because in Jerusalem it was not customary to have paneled houses. Only the very uber-wealthy folks had anything remotely like paneled houses. And yet, it's not time to build the house of the Lord, not time to be busy to serve God, but plenty of time for me to have the best of the best, to work hard for my own. And kind of a side note, and this is just conjecture on my part, but they started building the temple and then stopped, which tells me that they had to gather the supplies for it, right? Where did this wood come from on their houses? The best of the best. It was more than likely wood that they were gathering up for the house of the Lord. And they, did, they fell down on their job. It was what God had called them to do. And they said, God, you can wait. Look at verse, we looked at verse 6, look down at verse 9. You looked for much. It comes to little. You brought it home. I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? because my house lies desolate. They were so focused on their comfort, their security, and the wealth of the world, and yet they didn't have time to serve their God. And 
the result was a perpetual cycle of frustration. I work hard, and I get no return. As a financial guy, you look for returns, right? You work hard, and I get no return. So what do I do? I work harder, and I get little return. So I work harder, or I change my jobs, or I go somewhere else, or I try a different tactic, a different strategy. Over and over, this frustration set in. And it was God that was the one doing this to wake them up of their spiritual indifference. He said in verse 11, I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on the labor of your hands. We look back, verse 9, we already said it, that it comes in, you brought it home, and I blew it away. Why? Because you're not doing what I called you to do. Now, ladies and gentlemen, is there anything wrong with earning a living in this world? Please say no. No, there's nothing wrong with earning a living. God calls us to earn a living. You got to work. You got to eat. You got to work. That's fine. God calls us to do those things. But he never calls us to sacrifice serving him for our own self-interest. And this for 18 years is what Israel was doing after being in captivity for 70. You see, God's message to Israel is God's message to us. If we devote our time and energy to the things of this world, to the neglect of his work, then we'll find, our, we'll find ourselves in a perpetual state of frustration. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you. See, I said in King James, so you know it's serious. Unto you. And what were the all these things? Well, Jesus was talking about people worrying about clothing and what they're going to eat, what they're going to wear, what, what are they going to do, how are they going to live? Jesus said, that does not need to be your main focus in life. God knows you need that stuff. Look at how he takes care of nature, birds, the trees, and the flowers of the field. Aren't you more important than him, than those things? Of course you are. That's kind of a dull statement. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Now we are, you're probably thinking, well, wait a second. All right, I'm having trouble with the connection here because Israel, they're, they're, to serve them was to build the temple. We're not building any temples. Oh, 1 Peter, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but as choice and precious in the sight of God, meaning Jesus, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. For a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Down to verse 9, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Oh, we are building a temple. It's just not a temple made of brick and mortar. It's the temple that God is building through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what God has called us to do. We have to build it. We have to work in ministry and get involved. You know, there's never a good time to start serving the Lord. I'm just going to put that. It's never a good time. The only good time is when God says do it and you do it. It makes me laugh when 
I have young couples, and I ask them, oh, when are you, you going to have a family, start having kids? And I say, oh, well, we're going to wait until we save up a little bit of money, and my career goes in this direction. I just kind of, <laughs> yeah, let me know how that works out for you. There's never a good time to have kids, I mean, because there's never enough money, right? You just have kids, and you start doing it, right? The same thing goes with serving the Lord. There's never a right time to do it. You just do it, because that's the purpose that God has called us to. He saved us. He brought us from captivity to sin. You see the connections? These are all examples for our benefit. He rescued us from the captivity of sin in order to do what? To build the glorification of Jesus Christ. This church where he is the head of the church, we're all part of that. We're involved in ministry. We spur each other on to good works. We disciple one another. We go out and reach the lost. And God's glory is the one that's magnified, not my paneled house. Not the clothes that I wear. Not that there's things that are wrong with it, but it becomes wrong when it becomes our sole focus, like it was for the people of Israel. I like, he, he echoes this refrain all the way through this passage. Consider your ways. Verse 8, go up to the mountains. Bring wood, because we're going to need more of that, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. That's the ultimate issue, is the glorification of God. And where do we see the glorification of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's gathering people to himself. He's making God's enemies a footstool for his feet. We worship him with gladness. We encourage one another. We disciple. We reach other people for him. And when we do so, we're glorifying him. And then we can trust that God's going to take care of us. He's going to cover us. And I heard a message from a pastor. His name is Ligon Duncan. He's written many books, and he's a pastor of a church in uh, Mississippi. And, and he said, if you refuse to work for God that he'll make sure that nothing works for you. And I thought about this. First I was like, well, that's kind of harsh. And I thought, well, isn't that what he was doing here with these people? They were working hard, and they had no return. They were filling their purses and all for it to fall out and go into a million different directions. I hope we get that message, that we need to be about the Father's business. That's what Jesus said when he was in the temple, wasn't he? When his mom and dad couldn't find him. His mother and Joseph couldn't find him. Where is he? And you see him in the temple. He's teaching people. He's a kid. He's teaching people. And he said, we didn't know where you were. He said, must have known I'd be here. I must be about my father's business. Even Jesus knew it as a boy. We need to be about the father's business, glorifying him, glorifying his son. Well, I hope we get that message because the people here got the message. Praise the Lord. Don't always go down that way in the minor prophets. But the people here got the message. Let's look uh, at verse 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Verse 13, Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, Oh, what a glorious, glorious thing to hear. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their 
God. They got the message. But not long after, we run into another problem. So their first problem was indifference toward the things of God. Their second problem, I want you to turn to chapter 2. Now, I didn't mention this before, but Haggai is kind of divided up into four different messages. And the first and the third are very similar, and the second and the fourth are very similar. We're going to skip over the second. We're going to look at the third message. So go to chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, It will be unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Roughly three months after the building recommences again, we have an issue. We have a holiness issue. You see this illustration thing they're given. They're trying to probe their understanding of what it means to be holy. Holy meat is something that the priest would bless. It's consecrated for the altar and for the offering. And if you don't touch it, he said, now if you take this holy meat, you don't touch it, you just put it in, in the fold of your garment. So nothing but your garment is touching. Now if it, that fold happens to bump into something. Does that something become holy? By virtue of it touching the meat. So they're like, well, well No. Well, now let's say you touch the most unclean thing that you can think of, and so we're going to go with a corpse here. You're doing a burial or something, and that made you unclean. If you touch something, would that thing become unclean? Yes. See, they knew their Old Testament well. They knew the law very well. You see, the people were trying to become holy by rubbing elbows with the temple, but yet they were acting unholy themselves. Holiness was an issue for them. It was sinful, imperfect obedience. The first problem that they had was indifference to the things of God. The second problem they have was holiness, an imperfect, sinful obedience. Maybe even a lazy indifference. I mean, it's three months now, and I know things don't get built very fast in three months, but that's what's going on, which leads us to the second point, is that the gospel is the cure to indifference and half-hearted obedience. You see, now God said, you're just acting sinfully. You're building the temple. Okay, you might be doing it slowly, but you're building the temple, but you're doing it in an unclean way. You're doing it in a way that does not please me. You're not being obedient. You're being half-hearted about it. You're living one way, and you're working and trying to serve another way. You know, the whole, this is my church time, and this is my everything else time that dichotomy we create in our minds. When I'm in church, I act holy. I worship. I even put my hand up in worship service. It makes me look holy. But then when I go to my job, I don't act like I'm a Christian anymore. This is kind of like what's happening here. And instead of bumping elbows with the temple walls that I'm building over here, that doesn't make me holy. But I'm making everything around me unholy by virtue of my bad works, my, my disobedience before God. Got to move forward. Well, Haggai responded. See, God called out the sin, but he gave the cure. He gave the way out. And he said in verse 15 through 17, 
But now do consider from this day onward before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time, when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would only be 10. And one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, and there would only be 20. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. 15 through 17, a guy says, in order for you to, to move out of this half-hearted obedience that you're giving to the Lord, the first thing you need to do is look at, back at your life before God rescued you. They were in this indifference. They were not serving the Lord at all. They weren't following his commands. And God made life very difficult for him. I like to think, since we're building the temple, since salvation, that the cure for that indifference that Israel had and for their half-hearted obedience is we look back at the goodness of God when he saved us. We've got to remind ourselves of the gospel. And a key part of that is remembering who we were before God introduced himself to us. How was I living? Where was I at? Where was my heart, my attitudes? Was I following God? No, you weren't following God. I wasn't following God. There might be people that were shaking their fist at the sky toward God. But at some point, everything changed for you. You believed. At some point, through a gospel message, God opened your eyes, and you saw Jesus Christ for who he is. You saw yourself. I need help. Jesus saved me. Gave you the gift of faith to believe. That alone is such a cure for indifference and half-hearted obedience. Reminding yourself of the goodness of God and salvation. I know we say this a lot, and it's so easy to say, yes, I have to preach the gospel to myself. It's almost like a cliche at times, the way we preach the gospel to myself. Are we preaching the gospel to ourselves? Do we look in the mirror, preach the gospel to ourselves, and as a component of that, remind yourself of who you were before God rescued you? Now, we don't dwell on the old, because the old is gone, the new is here, but we dwell on it with an eye toward redemption and how great and glorious our God is, how he sent Christ to save you, to take the penalty of our sins upon that cross. Well, we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And then when we believed, his righteousness was imputed to you. And your filthiness was imputed to Christ. He's reminding these people, look back at how things were before God got your attention. That's what we need to do, look back. In verses 18 and 19, do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, and not the born fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. So Haggai says, you need to look back, and now you also need to look forward. So for us, we look back to salvation when God rescued us. We remember the gospel, but yet we look forward as to how the gospel should be impacting our lives. That is such an important part. Because you can just preach the gospel to yourself and it just becomes like a rote memorization, a recitation. But it really impacts you when you remember where you were when God saved you. And now that you're encouraged and you're growing in your faith and you really are repenting before the Lord, now you look forward and saying, how does my faith inform the way that I live from this day forward? Do I live right before God? How does my faith... That is a question. How 
do our works hinder or help the gospel? You can only do one of two things. Jesus said you are either for me or you're against me. Your works will either help the cause of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, or it will hinder them. It'll hinder its work in your own life or it'll help in your own life. It'll help, it'll work or it'll or to hinder the gospel in somebody else's life. And we start wrestling with those issues. Man, the Holy Spirit gets a hold of that in our lives and grows us to be more like Christ because we look back and see what Jesus has done and we're motivated again and excited and we fall more in love with Jesus Christ. Now I want to know how I can serve him moving forward. And we wrestle with those issues and we think them through. Meanwhile, half-hearted obedience is out the door. Because now you love Christ. Now you want to serve him again. That's what Haggai was telling the people of the day. It's the cure for indifference and half-hearted obedience. And now for 30 seconds. God's promises are the cure for discouragement. You know, we skipped over the first part of chapter 2. Look at verse 3. We're just going to skip to verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? You know, there were people who did remember the old temple. Solomon's temple was a wonder to see. It was beautiful. It was ornate. It was everything fitting of the glory of God. This one, they're building and going, this is not so good. It's seemingly insignificant. And it was getting them discouraged. And God reminds them of some keys to pull themselves out of their discouragement. Do you ever feel that way? You're serving the Lord and you don't see a lot of fruit. You're serving the Lord faithfully, day after day, and you don't see any fruit. You can't get anyone to help you. You can't get any volunteers to ministry. You can't see what God is doing. It can be pretty discouraging at times. Everyone goes through that. Pastors go through that. What's happening? You want to quit. You want to throw in the towel. And that's what the people were going through. They were ready to throw in the towel because the temple looked like it wasn't that big of a deal what they were doing. And he reminds them that God did not agree with their assessment of things. Look at verse 4. But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. God did not see what they were doing as very insignificant. God thought it was extremely significant, even though to their eyes it didn't seem like a whole lot was being accomplished. God wants you to know that if you're serving him, that it is very significant regardless of how small it may seem, how insignificant it may be, or whatever lack of fruit. And he gives them the key to the courage. I am am with you. Can there be any greater promise? Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28, verse 20. Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The name Emmanuel, we sing it at Christmas time, means God is with us. The Holy Spirit comes and fills us upon salvation. Everywhere we go, God is with us remembering that God is with you will encourage you in the times when you feel the most discouraged every single time. You know, verses 6 through 9, we don't have time to go into it, but he, he reminds them that they're doing things, greater things that they just can't necessarily see. 
He's reminding them of a messianic prophecy that Jesus was going to come and fill the temple and the glory of God would reside there. And it was like a, a messianic prophecy because Jesus always connected himself with the temple. He says, you see this Herod's temple? It was kind of rebuilt, made even more beautiful. He says, see this temple? Throw it down in three days, it'll rise again. He was talking about himself. Jesus is the true temple. And even though they couldn't see the significance of what they were doing, God was reminding them, I'm the one who has the plan, not you. God has the long view, not you. Trust him. He's good. He's with you. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. This motivated the people to carry on the work, no matter how insignificant it feels or seems. I'm reminded in Hebrews, that Hebrews 11, that great passage of the heroes of our faith all of the things that they were doing a big litany a list of amazing things and they were all looking for a country and they didn't see it in their time but it didn't matter abraham was longing for the promise he didn't see the promise of jesus christ the one who would bless all families of the earth but he believed it he knew it was coming and he knew that god was with him how about us you see, the message of a guy is very simple. Now is the time to serve the Lord. Don't be indifferent or with half-hearted obedience. You were made and reborn for a purpose. You were made to glorify him. There is no way that you can refuse to serve the Lord. He'll take care of you. He'll guide you. He'll be with you. He'll remind you of those things as you keep going and feel discouraged when you're struggling with that indifference or maybe half-hearted obedience, remind yourself of the gospel. Serve the Lord. That's what you were made for. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you saved us for a purpose. It wasn't because we were anything special. In fact, your word says quite the opposite. You saved us because of your grace and your grace alone, your mercy. But ultimately, you saved us to glorify you. There's other verses that we could have touched on tonight about how you've prepared beforehand works for us to accomplish in this life. I pray for each one of us here tonight that we would never fall into spiritual apathy or, endurance, or indifference. We wouldn't offer you half-hearted obedience. Lord, help us to realize that perhaps the reason why we've been in a state of perpetual frustration is, is perhaps that we have not been serving you like we should. I know it's not works, Lord. I know it's not, I have to serve you so you'll bless me. I know that's not it. But we could just get indifferent to the things of God. Forgive us for that. We repent of that, Lord. I pray for, for us who might be feeling discouraged in our individual ministries pray that you would encourage them, Lord, remind them that you're with them and that, that you're doing something through them that's greater than what their eyes can see. We trust your goodness and your grace. I thank you for each one of these souls that are here tonight. I pray for the one that is unsaved, that you would open up their eyes to see the truth of the gospel. You would grant them the gift of faith that today would be the day of their rebirth to a new purpose. We're grateful for the love that you lavish upon us richly. For without you, we'd truly be lost. In Jesus' name, amen.